So hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues, and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo, and I am a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in neonatal retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. Today my conversation is a little personal, but very related to neonatal care at home. My conversation is with my aunt, Val Totterdell, who over the course of 21 years from 1954 to 1977 gave birth to and breastfed 10 children. Val was born in 1934 and grew up in Coolman in New South Wales, the fourth child to my grandparents, Olive and Charles, and Val was also my dad's little sister. So Val, what can you tell us about growing up in the 1930s and 40s? What was my dad like as a young fellow? And what were your hopes and dreams back then? Uh, good morning. Growing up in a small country town in the Riverina district of New South Wales was idyllic for children in lots of ways. We had quite a lot of freedom and that little town was a very supportive community. We felt as though we had a safe place. Intellectual life was not great. For me, it was restricted to the home and the school. My parents were intelligent, but uneducated people, and we had no books at home. Hmm. Our reading material was confined to uh, the local paper and an occasional woman's weekly. Wow. So... Uh, Radio introduced us to the outside world and during the war years that was especially important. Nobody was allowed to speak when the war news was being broadcast. So it, that made life a little bit weird actually because it didn't sort of relate to us in our small country town. Hmm. <clears throat> I used to see people coming out of a lovely building in the main street of the town. It was called the School of Arts Building. And they'd come out of there with bundles of books in their arms. And I was told it was a library. So I said, oh, good, we'll go in. And my mother said, no, that's not for the likes of us. So I assumed at the time that we didn't have the correct money to join or whether it was just for the well-to-do people. I didn't really know, but I used to look at those people with envy. Hmm. <laughs> at school, we had, I was like in upper primary school, fifth and sixth grade, we had a, an old tin trunk with about 20 books in it, and I read every one of those books over and over and over. So I was very aware of that lack of... Um, well, I didn't know it was culture, but I was very aware of it at the time and I used to long for people to give me books. Oh, wow. And Auntie arrived once with a parcel. It was obviously a book and when I opened it, it was fairy stories. <laughs> right. I wasn't very impressed with that. <laughs> so, um, so school was really the most stimulating place 
intellectually. And so early on, I got a very strong desire to become a teacher and uh, improve kids' lives. Right. And so what was my dad like as a young fellow? Well, your dad was um, a live wire. His nickname <laughs> was Popeye. You know. Did you know that? Yes, I know. Uh, yes. And um, so I didn't have a lot to do with him when we were growing up. It was boys and girls were quite separate. But uh, I idolised him. He was five years older than me. And uh, I thought he was just just great. He went away to high school. Um, yes. After I think he stayed at the local school for three years, and then he did his last two years away at another town. And uh, I thought that was pretty good too. So that became one of my aims: was to go away and get educated. Right. And how did that pan out for you? Um, what to get to go away? Yes. Yes. Well, I had to work hard to get a thing called a bursary, which gave your per- parents uh, money towards your uh, board away from home, towards your uniforms and books. My parents were struggling financially, so they couldn't have done that if I didn't get a bursary to help pay for costs. So uh, I had a very good sixth grade teacher and she worked hard with me after school hours and uh, I managed to get a bursary, so off I went to high school. And and where was high school from Coolerman? Well, from Coolerman I went to Wagga, which is, it had a first class high school and, um, but no transport to get to it, no direct transports. Whereas uh, another school nearby, Narendra, which I would have preferred to go to, was only regarded as a second-class ha- second high school. And because I had a bursary, I had to go to a first-class one. Right, and so did you have... Uh, boarding was always a difficulty because there was no hostel and we had to look around and get private board. Right. So who did you stay with in Wagga? Well, I stayed with a couple of families. Uh, you know, that just made uh, single mothers who made an income by putting up borders for the school. Oh, fantastic. And um, so you would have been 11 or 12 then when you went away to board? Yeah, I was 11 when I went away, so I had to grow up very quickly, you know, learn to do everything for myself. So I was away from home when I got my first period, for example. You know, wow. I didn't didn't really know much about it. Right, yes, that must have been difficult to navigate. Um, so you studied teaching in Wagga or in Sydney? In Wagga Teachers College, yes. And, and uh, at, at that time, what were your plans about, um, what were your life plans and did you plan on getting married and having 10 children or how did all that come about? Certainly not. <laughs> no, I wanted to be a teacher. I was totally wrapped up in it. I loved the course. Uh, we were uh, telescoped into a, from a three-year course to a two-year course because of the war. They, they'd lost so many teachers and they were so short right. that they decided to churn out some teachers. But because of that, we didn't have the usual laid-back university-type course. We had 
lectures from nine to five, five days a week. And we did our practice teaching in our holidays at, at our local school where we lived. Right. So, um, yes, so I wasn't thinking of getting married at all. In fact, I had firm plans not to get married till I was at least 25. Right, that would have been quite old in those days, I imagine. Oh, very old, yes, yes, yes. on the shelf. Right. <laughs> and so after Teachers College, you went to work in Sydney? Do I, is it, did I get that right? I went to work in Sydney. I applied for Sydney. Normally I would have applied for probably far western New South Wales, but in the meantime I'd met my life partner. So that threw a spanner in the works. So he lived in Sydney. So um, I was lucky to get a placement in Sydney because there weren't that, that many available because they had their own teacher's college there. And uh, Bathurst also sent a lot of teachers to Sydney. So I know, so, I know you, um, Colin, was working as a photographer at the Women's Weekly at that time, but ha so how did you meet him if you were in Wagga and he was in Sydney? Well, I went to Sydney with my friend from Teachers College for a couple of weeks in the holidays and I went to a local dance and met him. Right, okay. So he does so say... That, that was it. <laughs> he sounds very glamorous. And um, But what what drew you to him and what, what did he have that made such an ambitious young woman change her plans? Well, um, yes, he was... Um, an educated person, that's what drew me to him. He had great knowledge of literature and classical music and, you know, I admired his mind and uh, obviously I thought he was handsome and uh, he was romantic and uh, we both <laughs> knew from the moment we met, the first week probably, not the first day, but the, after the first week, we both accepted that we were life partners. We just took it for granted. Wow. And, yeah, we discussed having children, mm. and I said that I'd like a large family, and he said, like, large as in what? And I said, oh, about six. And he said, oh, couldn't you be satisfied with four? <laughs> and we always joked that we made a mistake and added them together instead of taking an average. Right, <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, I, I totally get it because he was very lovely and such a good man for the planet. In the yeah. 70s, um, I remember you were both greenies, and um, which was quite a novelty for all your nieces and nephews. Yes, well, he was quite, he was really ahead of his time yes. in his attitude. So he had that environmental uh, appreciation and he, uh, he was uh, ahead of his time in his attitude to women, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah, he always championed women's, you know, uh, needs and what was good for women. Hmm. All right. So maybe tell me a little bit about your first birth. Um, where did you lay? Where did you labour? And who was your birth attendant? And was Colin there? Uh, no, he wasn't. That was a big thing in those days. You just couldn't have anybody in there. Not only couldn't have your husband, you couldn't have anybody in in the labour ward with you. Right. And um, <clears throat> so I went to a little hospital in Randwick and uh, you would think that that would be fairly uh, cosy and friendly and so on. The nurses were all lovely, but they, they, 
was so short staffed they were run off your yeah. feet. I used to see them a nurse running down the hall with a big basket of linen. You know, it, it was very understaffed, and I was on my own for most of the time before the baby was born. Right. So, um, yeah, I had a doctor in Randwick, and uh, I asked him about the birth process, and he said, oh, look, doctors don't have time to sit down and go through the birth process with patients, you know. Uh, we're there when you need us, blah, blah, blah. So I asked him to recommend a book that I could get to read up about it, and he said, I'll just go into a bookstore and ask. They'll have more idea. Mm. So I got this book called Childbirth Without Fear right. by Bradley Dick Reed, and I think that was his name. And uh, so he uses uh, relaxation exercises and other techniques like that and, and gets you doing exercises, you know, body exercises to improve your physical capacity. And um, the doctor didn't like that when I told him I had that book. He said, well, that's one book I would have preferred you didn't get. <laughs> And uh, because Colin was with me at the time and he said to Col, you just want to think that your wife won't be in pain and I'm going to tell you she will. <laughs> Great. But anyway, I did like that book and I followed, you know, the, the advice in it. So um, I was really glad that I'd had it because I was on my own so much that I had to fall back on Bradley Dick Reed's techniques, you know, to get through it. Yeah, it sounds like a lonely experience. Sounds like what yeah. perhaps women are going through at the moment in the pandemic. Yes, that's right. Um, so and the birth went okay in the end? Did the doctor turn oh, up yeah, at the... Birth was, birth was straightforward, yeah. It right. was about, about 14 hours at first birth, but, yeah, there was no complications. Right. I was young. I was just under 19, so, you know... Goodness. I think your body's ready for it. Yes. And so then did breastfeeding come naturally or did you find it a bit of a challenge? No, I always I breastfed okay, yes. I didn't have a problem at all. I did all the preparation that they advised, you know. Why, what did we do? We sloshed methylated spirits on there to toughen up the nipples. I think that was it. Was and, that be uh, before birth? <laughs> Before birth, yeah. Right. In the, months, in the months coming up, they used to advise you to do that every now and again and get the nipples tough so you wouldn't get cracked nipples. Oh, I see. <laughs> you probably haven't heard of that. No, I hadn't heard of that one. <laughs> so, then, so then you went on to have a baby every other year until 1969 and then you yes. took a break. So yes. did, did the attendance at birth and the shape of maternity care change over that time? And did it changed any... quite a lot. Changed quite a lot. Yeah, it became, it was very formal and rigid in the, the way things were done early on, you know. Um, you had to have a, 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 what do you call it, olive oil uh, thing. Enema. Uh, early on, you know. Yeah, you had, they had the olive oil treatment. Uh, it for probably for the first three births, and then after that, you had just had the straight out enema uh, before birth. And then uh, the biggest change was that um, they started allowing your husband to come in with you. But I I had my what uh, oh, seventh child 
when I talked the doctor into allowing that. But even then, when I got into the labour ward, I had to have another argument with the sister in charge because she didn't believe that I had permission. Right, to have, to have Colin in the room. Thing for, many, for three or four years, it was a very big thing about whether the husband was allowed or not. Right. So that was uh, about 1964, and then after that, I had my husband with me for each birth, no problems. Right. And you yeah. say, what was the olive oil treatment? Was that an olive oil enema? Or... Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Olive oil. You, drank it, you drank the olive oil. Right. Yeah. And it sort of cleared you out. It made you go. You know, you know, it's not very nice for the doctor if anything happens just as you're having the baby. Oh, yes. No, it's very unpleasant. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you ever have any particular trouble during those years? I mean, I sort of imagine Paul's head might have got stuck or perhaps John's shoulders. No, no, I didn't have any trouble like that. But uh, two of them had to be induced because they were a fortnight overdue. Oh, right. The doctor I had at that time, he would allow a fortnight. But a lot of doctors would only allow a week or ten days or something, you know. Mm. But uh, they were certainly well cooked. And, the ba- and funnily enough, they turned out to be the two slowest in the family at, <laughs> you know, at doing anything, like laid back. They right. were the two most laid back people. In the whole family, so that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I'll have to. I'll, I'll ask you off. Hesitated over being born. I'll ask you <laughs> offline who they might be, but um, anyway. So we always talk about busy families by discussing the number of children under five, and it occurs to me, doing the math and preparing for this podcast, that you and Colin lived for at least twelve years with two to three children under five at any one time. So how did you manage? You must have been exhausted. And how well, we... yeah. yeah, I used to get tired. I mean, we all get tired looking after children, whether it's one or two or six or whatever. So um, I think that, you know, probably three and four that was the hardest time from as far as exhaustion went. And then after that, it seemed to become... Uh, more natural, I suppose I slipped into the way of being a mum and uh, the older children just bond up with a particular one in the family so a lot of the uh, nitty-gritty falls to the other kids in the family and they like it. It's it's, um, it, it, it's n- nurturing for them to have someone close to them in the family besides mum and dad. Yeah. So that's how, that's how we found it anyway. Yeah, so um, it always um, amazed me how much energy you had, actually. Yeah, I did have a lot of energy, yes. But I had a great trick when I was tired. I used to go into the bathroom and lock the door and soak in a bath for about half an hour and let let all hell break loose in the house. <laughs> then I'd come out ready to go again. <laughs> oh, right. That's a good trick for young family planners. <laughs> So with your with your teaching, I have this memory of you, despite having all those children, you continued to teach even when you were living in Canberra with Colin. And so is that true? Did you continue teaching throughout that time? Well, uh, I wanted to keep my hand in. I didn't want to lose the skill. Yep. And uh, so, But I didn't teach full time any time that I was bringing up the children. I only worked as a relief teacher. 
So, and I didn't do that relief teaching where you just have a day here or a day there. I'd take on a job, say, for three or four weeks when someone was having an operation or right. having a baby. And uh, so that just gave me a little class to latch onto for a longer period of time. Yeah, going in and just doing a day here and there. You don't get to know the children. So uh, that was really good for me. And then later on in life, when uh, my last child went to school, well, when I say my last child, my ninth child, which was supposed to be the last. Yes. um, Yeah, I got a long-term part-time job, so I had 10 hours a week. Right. Regularly, you know, being a remedial reading teacher and that was absolutely perfect yes a perfect job and then even after your last child then you did some more teaching didn't you up in the northern territory yes that was uh when my 10th child was 11 or 12 i went up there yes yeah several reasons but it was a wonderful experience for the whole family because they all came up at one time or another while we were up there we were up there for five years and uh, they all managed to get up there and you know live in a aboriginal community for a period of time yes and that's an education in itself yes and, and so how old were you when you did when you went and did that oh I, I guess How if, old was I? Probably if Steve was 11, you probably... I was yeah. probably 50. Yeah. In my early 50s. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so just coming to your final pregnancy, it was in 1977 and you were 43 years of age. I remember it distinctly because my own mum had to have a good lie down after hearing your news. She used <laughs> to say you both would fall pregnant at the same time when the and she certainly had finished, she thought, and yeah. I think she went straight out for the first time in her life and explored contraception. Yes. Well, I had had contraception for the previous nine or ten years. I was on the pill. Right. And then I went off the pill because I was getting uh, pins and needles in my arms and legs. Right. And there was some worry about, you know, heart attack and so on at that time. So I went off that pill and I went on to the the uh, great birth, what's the birth, the Billings method. Oh, yes. Think of the name for a minute. Yep. The Billings method of birth control <laughs> and then shock, horror, bang, I was pregnant. Yes, so you would have been what we call in the obstetric world a grand multip, having number 10. Yeah, and, the, and the doctor told me that. He said that you were a grand multi-para. Yeah, so very high risk, and we would also call you an elderly mother, although now we are more polite and describe it as advanced maternal age. All right, yes. So <laughs> well, we... he talked me into going to a uh, specialist for the first time because because of that. Yeah. So were you frightened? And no, I was. Uh, I think I was just a person that went with the flow, and. Um, I was, well, you know, a bit nervous that there could be something wrong with the baby. Right, yes. But, uh, my my principal where I was working tried, tried to talk me into having a test and I said, what's the point of that? I'm not going to abort the baby even if it comes out. It's uh, damaged in some way. So, yeah. 
So I was, I had it in the back of my mind there could be something wrong with him. Yeah. Or her. Right. Yeah, so, I never ever found out what I was having. I didn't ever want to do that. <laughs> no. So now... So I was resigned to that birth. By, by the time I was about five months pregnant, I was totally resigned and happy, you know, looking forward to it. Yeah, I remember you being happy, actually. Yeah. And my, my youngest girl, she was the youngest until then, she was over the moon. Yes. <laughs> she said, oh, mummy, you shouldn't joke about something that means so much to me. Because <laughs> uh, she'd been asking for a baby brother she wanted for years and years. And I used to say, well, basis, you're the last. Someone's the last and you're it. <laughs> yeah, so she was <clears throat> She said she always knew there was a little brother out there waiting for her. Right, yes. Well, she knew more than you did, didn't she? <laughs> um, so she now, did. nowadays with our careers and our, we all have our 20s to ourselves, it's, it's not uncommon to have a pregnancy in our 40s, but back then it was uncommon. So did you suffer any social backlash apart from my mum's apoplexy? Oh, look, I didn't have much time to, to go out socially with all those kids, so... You know, a few, a few snide remarks sometimes from people, but, you know, on the whole, no. Raised eyebrows, that sort of thing. Right, and you stayed well during the whole pregnancy? Were I there... was well, yes, I was well. Um, I did have a hemorrhage towards the end, uh, about a month before he was due. I had a, quite a big hemorrhage, and the doctor put me into hospital to try and... Uh, stopped the birth. Uh, I was getting, uh, you know, preliminary uh, contractions. contractions and so on. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was a woman doctor, actually, which wasn't all that common then. And she uh, gave me something. I don't know what it was. I don't think it would be morphine, would it? <laughs> That's what I've got in my mind. And she did give me some drug to try and stop the birth process. Yeah, I'm not and, sure in yeah. the 70s what they would use. These days we would use a bit of nifedipine, which yeah. is a blood pressure medication normally, but that slows oh, pregnancy. Right. Oh. No, well, I, I wasn't interested really. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, anyway, that staved it off for a week and then he just decided, no, this is it, I'm getting born. So he was born and he was fine. He had, um, yeah, he had a high score, you know, when he was born and... Uh, he had a, a few little things during childhood, but on the whole, he's, yeah, yeah. Healthy, a healthy individual and a lovely person. Right. So I have to tell you that your daughters make that story of that hemorrhage a little bit more dramatic than you've made that there. <laughs> yes. I think I think they had to call the ambulance, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realise that was a month before. I thought that was around the time of delivery, but... No, um, it was a month before... Uh, yeah, four weeks before he should have been born, and he was born three weeks early. So right, I was in hospital for a week. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, the doctor explained it to me. She said, "The longer we can stave it off, the better, the stronger his lungs will be." Yes, yes. Because this is the time when the lungs, you know, put on a growth spurt, ready for birth. Yes. Yeah. Um. All right. So after you're, it was eleven years after. So 11 years after having your ninth child, you're again living with a baby and then a toddler. 
How were those yes. years? Were they harder or easier than the earlier children? It, it was harder. Yeah, right. it was very hard because, um, uh, yeah, there was no one at home now. Well, his sister was 10 years older. And, uh, I mean, I had a lot of help from her, of course, but it was harder because he relied on me for everything, you know, whereas all the other kids, they all had each other. Yeah. They entertained one another, but he relied on me for his entertainment. And there were no kids in the street now. All the family's children yep. had grown up and moved away, and there was nobody at whose house we could walk to. So for him to have friends, I had to drive him everywhere and uh, he, I had to drive him, to take him to school or walk with him, you know, longer than with the other kids because he had nobody to go with him. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it was a whole different life. So I learned what it was like to have an only child. Yeah, right. So it's a bit more right. like that now these days, I think. I found That's it, right. We all yeah. found it hard to find kids in the same street, etc. We all have to drive to give them entertainment. Yes, yes. So yep. so would you do it all again? What what advice would you give to young people who are planning families these days? Oh, no, I think, um, I think it's great to be able to control your fertility and, you know, space your children out. What worried me all those years was not having time for the total emotional support that children need. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just there's only a certain number of hours in the day. And, uh, I mean, if one person needs to have a talk for an hour, what do all the others do? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to make an even arrangement with so many children, you know. Hmm. Well, you'd have to ask them about that. But from my point of view, that was my biggest worry. I never worried about the money. We always managed to have food on the table. You know, I was a good manager from that yeah. point of view. But managing their emotional lives was a different matter. Yeah. I, yeah. I worried that I was they were missing out often. Right. Did you get a lot of emotional support from your own mother in that way? Uh, well, we were too far away and you didn't travel then like you do now. Well, nobody's travelling now. But, what, but about, um, what about as a child? What do you mean? Just, Just did your, uh, did, oh, did emotional you, support? Yes, yes. Oh, from her? Yeah. Yes, I did. Um, but I was a very independent person. I don't know where that came from. I think it was innate. Yes. Yeah, I was pretty independent from early on, I can remember. She, she often used to shake her head and laugh at me, you know, things I did. Like I ran a big face at my mother's house when I was only 12 or 13. <laughs> she was away and I put on a big fate to raise money for the old people in Wagga. I don't know where the hell I got that idea from. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. We, we had lolly stalls and you know cakes to sell, and we we had a horror house in the garage. <laughs> wow, sounds so fabulous! I was, yeah, I was pretty independent. And how much money did the fate raise? Oh gosh, I can't remember, but it was all announced on the radio. You know. The, oh wow! Well the, done. About these two girls in Coolerman raised all this money and for it, the old people's home. And who, who was the other girl? <laughs> Oh, a friend of mine, yeah, a friend from the school, yeah. Right. 
Okay, so moving on from there, I just want to talk a little bit about the pandemic that's going on, COVID-19 at the moment. So when you were born, when we were coming out of the Great Depression, and then there was World War II, and I'm constantly being told that the pandemic is the worst thing to happen to the world since that time. So what can you tell us about, you have told us a little bit about growing up during World War II, but does the pandemic and the lockdown really compare? Uh I think it's probably worse for people now. See, it's, it's um, hard for me because I, living in a small country town like that, the war didn't impinge on us like it did it, it, on people in the cities. And, uh, you know, if you're in a farming community, you've always got food available. And, mm. uh, you know, people tell me that in the cities that was harder with the... Uh, rationing coupons, harder to try and get the, enough food for the family and make it spin out, whereas out in the country, you know, you can you can buy stuff from local people. So it's a different situation. And I think as a child, for children, um, if you're not hearing much about it, it doesn't impinge on you. Yeah, that's right. And, and the, and the uh, adults didn't like us to know too much. Yeah, and uh, yeah, but, but I think this this pandemic it's it's certainly affected the whole community. It doesn't matter where you are, right? So it's because of the me- almost because of the media, it's impacting on yes, people. Whereas it's you're... so hard um, mentally for people. It's yes. such a whole different way of life. You know, you had to change your whole way of life, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We and think... we're creatures of habit. It's very hard to change habits of years and and feel comfortable in it you know that's our change usually takes place a bit slower (laughs) yeah and we were living these large lives and they've sort of contracted haven't they that's what I feel mostly is that you know our lives have really contracted back to our family circle yes that's right yeah so do you remember the changes in the healthcare system um, do you, did you see illnesses that we now vaccinate against a lot around, like measles, mumps, polio? And what about vitamin K? I think I think vitamin K was introduced in the late 60s. So some of your babies would have had it and then you would have been told that they wouldn't have had it, sorry, and then you would have been told that they need it. So how did that feel at the time? Well, that's funny that you should say that because I've never heard anything about it. Right, yeah, I think vitamin K was introduced and was just given. I don't think um, you were actually consented or told. No, no, uh, well, that's that's quite likely. Yes. So how was it given? Was it given by injection at birth? Or? Yeah, it was an intramuscular injection in our thighs at birth. I think I had it. Yes. Um, but people born before me probably didn't. So. Yes, yes, I can remember the, that happening. And what was it supposed to prevent or help? Oh, it, it helps with um, blood clotting um, when babies don't, their livers aren't quite mature at birth and so we're a bit prone to bleeding and we still see it, we actually see it a little, little bit more now because um, it is a consented injection now, whereas previously it was just given, it, well, there was no consent, um, but at some point along the way we decided we needed to get consent from parents to give it and... Um, yeah. So occasionally we see a baby who loses blood through their bowel or bleeds into their brain. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, my sister's first child had that problem, actually. 
Really? Yeah, Ted. Oh, okay. At that, my mother noticed because she was doing the washing. You did all the washing in those days. Yeah. Family members and uh, she she noticed blood in the nappy. Right. Yeah, but he had um, he was bleeding from the roof of his mouth. So the more he he uh, bre- breastfed, the worse it got. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Right. So it would it would present that way, and um, yeah, cause a few. You know, some babies bleed so much that they they die from the bleeding in the bowel, and of yes. course, the bleeding into the brain causes um, developmental problems. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I remember having the measles. So there would have been a lot of measles around. I think when you were having, when your kids were little. Um, yes. And you know we've had the great news this week that polio has finally been um, eradicated from Africa. From Africa, yes. Well, but, look, I was always for immunisation. I had my young friend of four died of um, diphtheria. Oh goodness! And, and uh, I never forgot it. Right. And that's what I say is that, well, I've even got people in my family that don't agree with vaccination. And I say you needed to be around and lose a friend at that age. I say that's, you know, impacted my life totally. Really? And, uh, you know. So was she a young Coolerman girl? For a four no, that was in Ganmain. We right. were living in Ganmain at the time, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she was my best friend, lived nearby, you know. I mean, you just, at that age, you've got no conception that somebody's going to die. Right. And so what happened? Were you? Did you see her become unwell? Oh, yes, she just sort of had what seemed like a cold and that, and then, oh, no, she can't come out. Oh, no, she's very sick. Oh, no, she's dead. Goodness, yes. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty tough. We just started going to school together. You yeah. know, we lived out of town a bit. My sister used to drive us in the sulky. Right. Horse, and she used to come with us, yeah. So um, whenever there's a vaccine that's been, you know, gone through all the testing and everything, I'm all for it. Yes, yes. Um, it's interesting, actually. Diphtheria is something that we've been able to completely wipe out. Like I think I've seen, I've seen measles and I've seen mumps, and as a clinician, I've seen tetanus, but I've never ever seen a case of diphtheria. So that has been a real achievement. Yes, it is. Yeah, and the same with scarlet fever. Have you yes. seen scarlet fever? Well, actually, I have seen scarlet fever because that we don't have a vaccination against that anymore. I mean, yet. Um, that's group A strep. And I know my dad had it and um, had some renal impairment from that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, my daughter's had scarlet fever. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's still around. It's the same organism that causes rheumatic heart fever, which you probably might have seen a little bit of when you were in the Northern Territory. Because we yes. still haven't been yep. able to get on top of that. Yeah. Um, so on a slightly lighter note, I remember once um, with your history of asthma, you told us that Colin nearly made you die with laughter once. Um, oh, he did. He was reading at we were at a motel in uh, South Australia on our way home from WA, and uh, he was reading out these jokes out of a book, The Two Ronnies. All right. And. Um, so he got to this one and uh, it was so funny that he couldn't stop laughing and say the punchline because <laughs> he was reading ahead and uh, he laughed so much and then I laughed and then I had this massive asthma attack. 
so I had to go to hospital. We didn't have very good medication in those days. And, um, yeah, I told him on the way, I said, you can tell them all I died laughing. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, there must have been a few occasions like that because obviously you did laugh a lot together, but that wasn't the one I was thinking of. Um, my, oh, wasn't it? My, my favourite is when, when you the children had all grown up and gone away and you thought you might like to travel the world, but you didn't have any money, and so you entered a Valentine's Day competition. No, I didn't actually enter a competition. My friend rang up. She knew I'd been trying to talk Colin to going for the right. last five years. Yes. And she rang up and said, oh, did you know Qantas have got a special for Valentine's Day? Right. And I said, no. And she said, it's open until midnight tonight. She said, two for the price of one to London. Right. So I got off the phone and I said to Cole, right, you've got about eight hours quickest decision of your life because if you're not coming I'll take one of the girls <laughs> <laughs> right and then and so then off we went we had a wonderful wonderful trip yeah and yeah. somewhere along there you ended up you were in a you were doing some exploration in caves some what exploration in caves oh yeah that was actually in Australia yeah in Western Australia that that happened yeah Oh, really? Where where you were walking across a, a waterway? And, yes, um, it was um, it, it was uh, uh, it, it was a tunnel. It's called Tunnel Creek. It's a tunnel under a mountain. Yes. And um, sometimes it's so high that you can't go through it. But then you know it it gets really low, and you can walk all the way sometimes. But when we went through it, you had to swim about. Oh, in stretches of about 50 metres, you had to swim, but it's narrow and you can find places to hang on to at the side, yeah. Yes, that's when Colin told me I should have married somebody else. He wasn't going to do that. <laughs> and, and how old were you then? Oh, uh, probably 50. Yeah, I think it was po post having 10 children and so you were neck high in water and he was telling you that you should have married someone else and made you oh, laugh. He, he stayed out at the entrance and um, uh, with the, another woman's husband. So I went through it with this other woman. So right. Her husband didn't want to do it either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. All right, so I always close my podcast episodes by asking about gender and what role it's played in your life. Um, you've been one of my strongest role models and I've always thought of you as a staunch and powerful feminist. Is that true? And so how has gender affected your life? Yes, well, obviously it's affected it hugely. Um, uh, simply for the fact that uh, we weren't uh, able to avail ourselves of the uh, birth control because we were... Uh, our religion didn't agree with it, and we we wanted to follow that. So, um, I mean, I'm happy I've got ten children now, and I was happy with them when I was bringing them up. But um, I don't I don't advise it. But um, yeah, being a teacher, um, you weren't you weren't impacted by that. Um, the feminist problems that other people were in other jobs because we were always paid equally. Yes. And, um, 
yeah, it, you were treated equally. So I didn't. I, I'm amazed at the stories we're hearing about the way people are treated and the way the way men, you know, assume things that women should do, and so on. Yeah, so did you, I mean, I guess in the in the education world, you know, were there many female principals around when you were going through or did did you have um, opportunities for promotion or was it always yes. assumed the man well, would yeah. get it? wherever I was, there was always uh, opportunities for promotion. See, for many years, the principal of the lower part of the primary school was always a woman. The mm. kindergarten, first and second grade, that was always a woman in charge of those lower grades. Mm. And, um, yes, and it wasn't uh, until after I left, probably, that uh, oh, my good friend who didn't marry, that she was at Teachers College with me, she uh, became a principal probably uh, eight years into her profession, which was good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the opportunities were there in teaching. Yeah, that's good to hear. You know, the community... Uh, the community sort of believed that uh, the girls shouldn't get educated. My father thought I was wasting my time. I was only going to have a family and uh, like every other woman. Yes. And that, that would be my job. Well, you know, he was right in that regard, but I didn't ever regret my education or, or uh, yeah, and having a profession behind you when you're a mother is a great backstop. Because yeah. I knew no matter what happened, I could always care for them and provide for them because teaching has always been well paid. Yes. I'm not sure they'd always agree with you right now. but They um, don't all agree with me at the time. Even when I was teaching, they were, ad, you know, agitating for, yeah. for better wages. And at the time, we had, a, we had a good living wage. I didn't agree with it. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, we weren't. It, nurses were very underpaid for many, many years, but I thought we were up there, you know, with a par, on a par. Yeah, well, I think that's the problem is that you probably were on a par in those days, in the early 70s, and it sort of um, stayed the same. And nowadays, you know, I've my children, there were kids in, you know, the really bright kids in my son's year wanted to be a teacher until he heard about the wage and then he just thought well that's crazy I've got you know he, he topped his school um, which yes. I guess is a shame for teaching in general um, we should be um, rewarding it you know I think it's a really hard job actually taking well, care of it is a kids. hard job um, but I I think that the community job. as a whole we expect too much yes you know we all expect too much we've got to cut back you know, we've got to start accepting that we don't need all this money. I mean, it's obscene the amount of money that people earn. <laughs> and we only need to live. Yeah. You know, we've just, we just we need a whole change in our culture, really, from, you know, this, this give me, give me, give me it has to come to an end. It can't go on forever. Yes, it's not great for the planet, is it? No. Hmm. All right, well, my dear Auntie Val, I'm always so proud to introduce you as my aunt and to tell all the legendary stories that perhaps some of them I've invented in my mind, but um, <laughs> you, uh, that you had any energy to give your nieces and nephews has always amazed me, given your own lovely lot. You were always patient and kind and gentle with a ready and hearty laugh and often a good recipe. 
Thank you so much for being you and making all of our lives better. And thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Uh, it was a pleasure. I've had a very fortunate life, Kat. All the best. Bye. Great. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at Neo Conversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Thank you.